invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Um, if you uh, don't have a Bible with you, uh, either paper or phone Bible, uh, please take one of the ones in the row and uh, check that out and look near the back of the book at John chapter 5. Or if you don't own one, feel free to take that as your own. Uh, we're looking at this, uh, our series of looking at Jesus in the book of John, the Christ who satisfies. And uh, I'd just like to say thanks be to God for Josh this morning. Um, a sickness has taken out our, our music team today. We had two of three taken out by sickness. And then Josh is recovering from a, from a migraine last night. So uh, we're grateful he's uh, stepped up and followed and loved, loved us well and loved Jesus well by serving. Um, so we're in this uh, book of John, and uh, we're looking at how Jesus alone satisfies. And you've got to remember, the first four chapters of John are really where Jesus goes into Judea and Galilee and stirs things up quite a bit. Uh, he stirs things up by uh, do, teaching the gospel, uh, even some provocative things. And, and we come to him in the book of John in chapter 5 where he's just healed a man. And you and I would think, that's really cool, he healed somebody. But what you don't know is that behind the scenes, we, we, as we've seen the last few weeks, uh, the Jews, and particularly Jewish leaders with their religious system, did not, were not happy with that. In fact, they resisted Jesus uh, healing a man because they considered it work. Uh, chapter 5 is the first place in the book of John where we find out that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because of the ways he was stirring things up. They were angry at him. So Jesus, in chapter 5, gets into it with the Jews, and we're going to see how now he makes a case for his authority as the Son of God even before them. Look with me now, listen to the words of Jesus in John 5, starting in verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he is borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that, so that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we do pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds to this uh, word from John 5. And we pray you'd speak through the speaker. He's weak. He needs your grace. And we pray that you give us ears so that this whole experience of hearing from you uh, will move us towards you, that we might know you as the one true Lord who's loved us and given himself for us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I did it this week. I joined a gym here in Ballantyne. And I'm uh, going to start working out some more, taking care of myself now that my knee's fixed. Uh, but there was an interesting experience I had joining the gym. Uh, while I joined the gym, one of the things they make you do in the first visit or so is meet with a personal trainer. And there you talk with the personal trainer about kind of your, your, how you're doing physically, your uh, goals, uh, and even what, you, uh, what you're um, kind of planning on doing in the long run with this working out. That, of course, is standard. But the part that I didn't expect was this week they asked me about my diet. And I told the guy that I was doing the keto diet. I started a few months ago, and I told him, okay, so I've had some really good weeks and not some really good weeks, but overall I I'm, 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 have been losing weight. Well, he got super excited I was doing the keto diet. And he got so excited that uh, he said, that's the diet we tell everybody here at our gym to do. They need to be doing this. And then what shocked me is that in the next 20 minutes, the guy proceeded to give me an incredible, passionate lecture on why everyone should do the keto diet. He went through one thing after another, his own experience with it. He starts bringing out studies from universities around the nation that say the keto diet is the diet that you should actually do. Now, of course, a little bit he's preaching the choir. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing it already. But as he's doing this, the passion from him was just palpable. And I thought to myself as he was talking, I thought, you know, 20 years ago, I did the Atkins diet. And everybody was all game on the Atkins diet. In fact, there were probably studies that were done that say you should do the Atkins diet. 10 years ago, I did the South Beach diet. And I know for a fact from reading books that I did back then that there are all kinds of studies that say the South Beach diet is the one you should do. And then there are a whole bunch of other diets you guys know about that I don't even know about that I'm sure we could find studies from universities around the nation that say this is the diet you need to do. And as he's going with this for, for 20 minutes, I start thinking in my head, which one is right? Everyone claims to be the right diet, the way you should actually eat. How can you know what the, which one is the real authority regarding the kind of diets we should actually have. Well, guys, i got to tell you, today in John chapter 5, we're going to run into a similar question about authority and particularly which one we should listen to in our life regarding when God speaks in some way. In fact, today we're going to look at Jesus who came into a time when there were other Savior figures, even Messiah people coming in and saying, I'm the authority, listen to me. You should know that. First century Judea, all kinds of people were popping up regularly like that. But Jesus comes in, and according to the Word of God, he was qualitatively different. There was something extraordinary about him. And people wanted to know, while he was walking the earth, how can we be sure Jesus is the one? How can we be sure? 
Well, today in John 5, Jesus himself is going to make a case for how he is the one that we can rely on, the the one Lord that we can listen to when there are so many voices in that time and in this time saying, this is what is true, this is what is right, this is how you should live. And the grounds for his case are included in our outline that you'll find in your bulletin. And those grounds will be that Jesus is the actual judge and Lord. He has five witnesses we're going to talk about. And he is uh, also that unbelief gets in the way of recognizing the real authority that Jesus presents to us. So let's dive in, starting in verse 30. And here's the context. Jesus has been saying and doing all these provocative things, healing. He's even equated himself to, to God by saying, calling God my father. And uh, that just really freaks out the Jewish leaders of the time. He heals this man on the Sabbath, which again was against the religious laws of the time, but not against God's law. And all this is just totally infuriating the Jewish leaders to the point that they get judgmental about him. They start, uh, get so judgmental and so infuriated with him that they want to kill him. Jesus is aware of this. And as a result, he responds by making a case for his lordship, starting in verse 30. And this is what he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying in this first verse already that that there is nothing that he does in his life or even says in his life that God the Father hasn't endorsed Or sent him to do. Jesus is at the same time the most powerful Lord in the universe, according to what he claims, and he's the most dependent Lord in the universe, actually depending on his Father for his mission wholly in this way. Now, what's incredible about that is what God himself sends Jesus to do and even calls Jesus to do in our case, and doing what the Father wants in this case, includes making judgment upon men. And look back at verse 22 in chapter 5. If you got your, open your Bibles to verse 22, you even see how Jesus highlights this and says, the Father judges no one. That is, the Father is choosing to judge no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So the Father steps back from the judgment role uh, as a judge and hands it to Jesus. So here's what that means. Jesus claims that God's given him the right to judge in his own stead, and Jesus is therefore the final and ultimate judge of all men. Jesus is the final and ultimate judge of all men. Now, i got to admit, all this immediately strikes us as kind of different and funny. In popular culture, then and now, we like to think of Jesus as the prophet of love, we like to, his inspiring calls to, to love one another, to love enemies, and to even care for people like the poor who can't take care of themselves. But what we don't expect is that Jesus not only saw himself as a lover, Jesus sees himself as a judge, and the judge of people like you and like me and the people of his day. This is what's interesting about Jesus in this way. And so we have to understand, have to ask the question, then how do we understand Jesus' judgment? And what what kind of judgment is he talking about here? Well, when we talk about judgment in scriptures, we need to think about it in two ways. You think about it in terms of temporal judgments 
and final judgments or eternal judgments, temporal judgments and final judgments. Jesus goes on to talk about how he didn't come to judge men. He even says that in the book of John. But he came to seek and save the lost, to rescue us from sin. I can say amen to that. That's a beautiful thing, that Jesus came for that purpose. But he also states that he will return and judge the living and the dead. Jesus' ministry in Scripture and, and in life now is full of temporal judgments in our time. But at our death and even when Jesus finally comes back at the end of time and the second coming, we'll get final judgment from him. So, what's happening in our text relative to Jesus' judgments? Well, the Jews are pushing back on him. They're resisting him in his ministry. They are judging him is what they're doing. And Jesus does this amazing thing in this text. He actually turns the tables on them. They're busy judging him, but he starts to judge them temporally for their unbelief. And what does he do? He does it by putting them on trial. This whole text is full of courtroom language. You've got the language of testimonies and bearing witness and even judgment itself. Jesus, in other words, sets up a courtroom in creation or wherever he is with all of these Jews, and he puts them on trial. In the process, he plays a role. He serves both as a district attorney and the judge, turning the tables to shock the Jews into understanding the danger of where they were spiritually. Now, we've got to ask, okay, Jesus is doing all this stuff in these first few verses. What's that got to do with us? Well, if Jesus puts on his judge and attorney hat, here's what you can bet. You can bet he brings the goods. He brings the goods. When you deal with Jesus in any way, you've got to get used to something about being near him and around him, whether you're a believer or not. He specializes in holy disruptions. He specializes in holy disruptions. He disrupts life with, our, with his words, even with circumstances, to get our attention. In an age where we say, don't judge me, some may say that Jesus even getting in our business with holy disruptions may seem a little mean. But I want to tell you something. Judgment is not mean. Real judgment from God is love. Let me illustrate. If someone you love and you're walking along with them someplace and they started to walk toward a cliff, what would love be if they start walking towards a cliff? It would be for you to stop them and say, hey, stop, whoa, whoa, you're headed towards a cliff. Don't walk any further on the towards the cliff. It's dangerous. You could fall off, right? That's love. Let's say someone doesn't listen to you and they keep walking towards a cliff. What do you do then? Well, love looks like this. You stand in their way. You get in their way and you speak forcefully to them. While we don't want to be harsh necessarily, sometimes you have to be tough to stand in their way so they want, uh, won't walk off the cliff. Well, this is what I want to tell you. The judgments of Jesus are just that. They're loving judgments that keep us from walking off a cliff. In fact, Jesus tells us as much in verse 34 of our text. Look at that, at what he says. It says, not that the testimony I receive is from man, but, here's the key, 
I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus speaks tough words sometimes into our lives as a judge in order to cause us to be saved, to rescue us. And so here, he's telling these Jews who want to be violent with him, who want to kill him, I'm trying to rescue you. I'm trying to save you from your own hardness of heart towards God. And he's being disruptive about it. So I have to ask, how about you? Is God disrupting you in your life in some way? With his words? With circumstances? You know, he may be trying to rescue you. He may be trying to keep you from walking off a cliff. So Jesus is this great judge who disrupts life with the truth, with circumstance, so we won't walk off a cliff. And in our text, Jesus plays another role. He turns the table, and in the, in the next few verses, he actually starts to play the role of a district attorney. He brings up multiple witnesses, as if you will, to the stand to attest to his authority and lordship and why people should listen to him as a son of God. Now, you've got to understand, Jesus is a good attorney. And good attorneys know there's due process. And due process in that time, as in ours, includes that, that you don't trust your own testimony. You get the testimony of others. In fact, Jesus says that in our text, doesn't he? He says, hey, you don't have to listen to my testimony. Now, let me be clear. When he says that in that verse, he's not saying, don't listen to me. <laughs> what he's saying is, I understand if you are looking to understand the truth. And if we've got to establish the truth, we'll need multiple witnesses to establish that truth. So I, he, in Jesus' case, he doesn't bring, he, he, he's really obeying Deuteronomy 19, which talks about you need multiple witnesses to establish truth. Two to three witnesses is what, uh, what the Old Testament says. That's true even in our time, in our civil courts, where we bring in witnesses to us, uh, attest to what is true. But Jesus is so good, he doesn't bring out two witnesses or even three witnesses. He brings out five witnesses. Five convincing witnesses to establish the truth of his lordship and that we should listen to him. Look at the first witness in verse 32. Look at what it says there. It says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Who is the another that Jesus is talking about? Well, that's the Father. That's actually the Father. In fact, in verse 32 and verse 37, Jesus talks about the Father, God the Father being one of the witnesses. And, and here's how that shows up in history, or even before history, in the covenant of redemption, when God and the Father and the Son decided that Jesus would come into the world and change and rescue people. Uh, God was a witness by sending Jesus into the world with his task. But there are other ways that God speaks. In fact, we know uh, from, that in Christ's own life, there were two events where God spoke in an audible voice and other people heard, and the transfiguration, where God spoke in an audible voice that people heard, where he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. There God speaks, even in history, Peter goes on in 2 Peter 1 to talk about this very experience that he had hearing the voice of God uh, in this case. So God the Father is a witness to Christ's authority. But there is a second witness. And the second witness Jesus brings up in court 
shows up in verse 33. Look at what verse 33 says. 33 says this, You sent to John, and he has borne uh, witness to the truth. There's another witness. It's, here he's talking about John the Baptist. So God sends John the Baptist as the final Old Testament prophet into our world to speak and to announce the world the coming of the Christ. John the Baptist is the voice crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist was the one who said, there is one coming after me whose shoes and sandals I'm not worthy to even untie. This same John the Baptist says two amazing things. He says, I am not the Christ. And then when he's with his disciples and he sees Jesus, he says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, in other words, is yet another one who is a witness to Christ. Now, Jesus says this interesting thing in this text. He talks about how he doesn't need John the Baptist effectively uh, testimony. He doesn't need men's testimony. And he says it for a reason. He says it because he's God. God doesn't need men to establish the truth because God is the truth. Truth is inherent to who God is, even in Jesus. But here's the thing. God so loves us, and he knows that we are hard-headed people, and I am chief among them, let me tell you, <laughs> that he will send preachers to tell us the truth, to persuade us in the courtroom of God. Jesus brings a third witness to the stand in court, which shows up in verse 36. Look at that one. It says this, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, there's the word again, bears witness about me that the Father has sent me. The third witness Jesus brings to, uh, to the courtroom is his works, more specifically his miracles, his miraculous works. And in John 15, 24, Jesus highlights that Jesus does a level of miracles in time and space that most of us are just not familiar with. They were unique that no one else has done. He did healings. He did deliverances. He walked on water. We've got that coming up soon. He even uh, feeds 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. Jesus is saying, oh, Jesus even resurrects people from the dead. <laughs> And what Jesus is saying here is, just look at my miraculous works, the volume of them. Those works authenticate Jesus' words and his claim to authority. They prove his authority as the Lord. Now, here's the interesting thing. When it comes to the miracles, you'd think if you saw a miracle, a real miracle, walking on water or uh, five loaves, three fish, whatever, uh, multiplied, you'd think people would go, wow, this guy's amazing. But the interesting response of the Jews was, they still didn't believe him. It didn't matter how many uh, uh, miracles he actually did. It was never enough with the Jews. Now, someone here might say, okay, here we go. Talk about those miracles. I don't know what to think about all that miracle stuff in Scripture. It seems kind of hokey to me. But you should know this. Here's what you need to consider. The four Gospels were wit written by witnesses to Jesus' life or the witnesses of those who had witnessed it. And um, the apostles preached and wrote uh, these very words over several decades and wrote the Gospels between about the 50s, the 50s A.D. to the 80s A.D. 
the apostles preached and wrote about these miracles using names and places like Bartimaeus and Jericho, like Lazarus and Bethany. Why would they do that? Well, in myth, you don't use names and places. In truth, in historic truth, you do. And you know why they did that? It was this, they were saying, hey, you don't believe me that Bartimaeus was healed? Why don't you go to Bethany, I mean, go to Jericho and ask him. You don't believe Lazarus was raised from the dead? Go to Bethany and talk to the people there about it. It's as if these guys were saying, I dare you to go verify what we're talking about. Jesus and what, he was, what was taught about him in the Gospels really calls us to deal with the reality of what he said. There's an application here for all of us, though, that goes with the miracles and all that Jesus is saying already, and that's this. We've got to beware, as we hear about Jesus and talk about Jesus, we've got to beware of easy familiarity with him. That's what the Jews were guilty of. They kept saying, Jesus, oh, he's just the son of Joseph and Mary. <laughs> they wanted him to do miracles on demand. They were demanding of him. But here's what Jesus does when we treat him with easy familiarity and even demandingness. You know what he does? He interrupts our life with a holy disruption. And sometimes he doesn't answer prayers. Sometimes he removes his felt presence in what some in history have called the dark night of the soul. He sometimes seems to go radio silent in our lives. You need to understand, these are acts of loving judgment. Loving judgment. Where we are called to be more curious and seek him out, to long for him as he really is, not just as the way we want him to be. Jesus isn't done with the witnesses. He brings a fourth witness up in verse 39. Look at that with me at verse 39. Look at what that says. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them they have eternal life, and it is they, there's the word again, that bear witness about me. God speaks to us through another witness, the fourth witness of Scripture itself. And here, Jesus is talking about the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, full of prophecies, full of types. And you know what's interesting? The Jews studied their Bible. They knew their Bible better than you and I do. They knew it really well. Yet when Jesus showed up, they didn't recognize him. They didn't see him. They didn't hear him. They didn't get... That, when, that the Bible actually pointed to him. And here's in large part why. is because they focused on the letter of the law, not the story of the law. They focused on what they were supposed to do with the Bible, not what God has done for us in the Bible. There's a movie you may have heard of or seen called Mr. Holland's Opus. Has anybody ever seen that? It's about a musician who uh, aspired to be a great conductor, but he ends up working in a high school and teaching kids really his whole music career. And it's a series of stories of his interaction with kids, teaching them how to play an instrument, 
uh, among other things. And he gets this, there's this one story, this one uh, teenage girl that's really striking. Uh, the girl uh, was trying to play the clarinet. And she is really working hard at it. I mean, she is trying her best doing everything she can playing the clarinet. She practices for hours and hours. She tries as hard as she can. Yet when she gets together with Mr. Mr. Holland, when she plays it, it's terrible. She does a terrible job. Mr. Holland uh, notices that as she's playing, she's trying so hard and noticing her own mistakes that he finally says, let me have the music. And he takes the music from her, the music sheets with the notes on them. And then he says this, I want you to play without the notes in front of you. You already know it. You've been practicing a million times. Just play. Well, she picks up her clarinet and she starts to play. And it's a little bit of a struggle at first, but then it hits her. <laughs> and she starts playing the music. And it starts flowing. And she's free. I think sometimes this is a great illustration of you and me with our Bibles as they were terribly prone to focusing on the notes. And we miss the music of the gospel. I sure do. Jesus is calling the Jews here to listen to the music. Listen to the music, the story of what God has done for them and him. The Jews in Jesus' time missed the music. In fact, they were so focused on the law that, uh, that, G, that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, that Jesus talks about how they're focused, so focused on that those first five books that they miss the, the, the music. So he brings up, as a result, the, the fifth and the last witness in verse 45. Look at this at what it says. It says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accused you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. What is Jesus talking about? The Jews and their focus on the law, the letter, not the spirit, that is even the story of the gospel, they created a system of religion. They were so afraid of being judged by God, ironically, that they said, we've got to create a bunch of rules to support the law of God. So they had a whole system of rules that actually were supposed to uh, interpret, if you will, how you live in light of the law of God. And the result was that they actually focused more on Moses and the letter of the law rather than the whole point of the law. What is the point of the first five books of the Bible and the rest of the prophets and the poets in the Old Testament? The point is this. It doesn't matter how hard Israel tries. It doesn't matter how hard the heroes, even Moses, tries to get it right. Nobody gets it right. Nobody can get the law right. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. It cries out for somebody to get it right. It cries out for a Christ to get it right. For someone to get the law perfect, and even to pay the penalty for those who don't get it perfect in the law of God. Jesus invokes Moses for this very reason. And you know what the interesting thing about Moses is? In Deuteronomy 18, 
Moses himself predicts a coming prophet, the great prophet, Jesus himself, who would come and bring truth, the truth that would finally set them free. So there are the five witnesses that Jesus gave to the Jews to persuade them. And the hard part about this is despite what Jesus says in this text and others, the Jews just wouldn't believe. The text says they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't receive Jesus. They didn't take his lordship seriously. They didn't come to him. And why is that? What is behind the unbelief? Look at verse 44 with me right now. 44 says this, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? If you want to get down to the main thing that keeps us from believing and keeps unbelievers from believing, it gets down to this. We seek glory from men rather than God. We are made to seek the glory of God and to seek glory from God, but we're terribly bound to loving the praise of men over God. How can you know that you are falling for the love and glory of others rather than God? I got this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Got to give him credit where credit due. MLJ says, you love respect so much that it's an idol. If someone disrespects you, you go crazy. Your reputation, the opinions of others, is way too important. You live in fear of criticism. That gets me. You live in fear of offending. Why do I say that? Because when you live in the truth like Jesus did and you even speak the truth, you will offend Let me be clear. We don't, as Christians, go around being jerks. (laughs) We don't go around being difficult. We actually should be charitable, kind, and gentle with people. But what Jesus is saying is he's giving a warning here about loving the glory of men more than God. And isn't that what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? They chose at one point to pursue their own glory over and against God's glory by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus is giving us a sober warning of what unbelief looks like. That's what we're seeing here, even in verse 44. But that begs a question. What does true belief look like? Well, we've got clues throughout our entire text here, and it's simply this. It's believing and receiving Christ as the Lord, Christ as the final judge, who you answer to. True belief is resting in Christ's righteousness and obedience to the law, not your own obedience. True belief comes down, if you will, to the cross. The cross is where we trust Christ the judge to take our judgment on himself for you and for me. And that we are fully forgiven and finally freed. Isn't that the irony of the cross? Even this text, Jesus, the judge, shows up. And then he says, I love my people so much 
I will take the judgment of the Father on the cross for them. This is a different kind of Lord in Christ than any in history. True belief is when you trust that he will get it right when you and I could never do that on our own. How do we apply this even as we come to the supper today? If you're exploring Christianity for the first time, this is what I'd tell you. Jesus is offering himself to you today, and this is what he says, come to me. Come to me. One day Jesus will come back as the judge. When you come to him and receive him and dare to believe the case he makes in John 5 today, even with witnesses, you can rest that you'll have a free eternity because you're finally and fully forgiven. If you're a follower of Christ, a couple things I'd highlight. The first is this, don't miss the music of the gospel for the notes of religion. And I'll speak to those of us who work at the seminary. And there are some of us here. Guys, gals, let's not focus so much on our theology that we miss the author of the theology. That we miss Jesus himself. We are prone to that. I being the chief in many ways. Furthermore, did you notice the language of bearing witness here? Bearing witness. That's our job, guys. And here in the coming months, somehow we need to pray our way through sharing the gospel with people, inviting them to events here, even daring to broach that we follow Jesus, even when our friends and family or even coworkers don't want to talk about it. Oh, there's a, there's a wise way to do it. I'm not saying be pushy, but I am saying do it with love and courage. Bear a witness just as Jesus has for us. We answer to Jesus as Lord of all. Because he is the judge, our ultimate judge. But this is a judge who's loved you even to death on a cross. Now let's go and prepare our hearts for the supper. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now that you would speak to our hearts from this text. And in as much as we struggle to understand what it means to follow you as a judge, Jesus, let us take comfort in that that you're a loving judge and that when you bring judgments into our lives and you speak in disruptive ways, you're doing it because you want us to see you more clearly as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you, Jesus, that you disrupted my life and have even done it in recent months. Continue to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.